Welcome to the Two Cities Podcast, a podcast about theology, culture, and discipleship. And this is episode 121. In this episode, we're having part one of our discussion on theology and Black Mirror. Joining us for this conversation, we have Dr. Megan Fritz, who is Assistant Professor of Philosophy at the College of St. Scholastica in Duluth, Minnesota. Dr. Rebecca Lamb, who is Lecturer in Theology and the Arts at the Institute of Theology, Imagination and the Arts at St. Mary's College of the University of St. Andrews in Scotland. And Dr. Joanna Leidenhag, who is Lecturer in Theology and Liberal Arts at the University of Leeds in England. And Dr. King Ho Lung, who is Senior Research Fellow at St. Mary's College of the University of St. Andrews in Scotland. Team members on the episode from the two cities include Dr. Amber Bowen and myself, Dr. John Anthony Dunn. So Amber, the book that we've been working on since 2019 has just been published and it was a delight working with you, thinking intensely about Black Mirror and, and its theological themes. And we have a number of wonderful contributors to that, to that volume joining us today for a fantastic conversation. And before we turn to that, let's tell our listeners a little bit about the process of, of working on this book for the last couple of years. Well, I just remember uh, we, were, we were talking at one point when I was in Minnesota as a visiting scholar at St. Olaf College, the Kierkegaard Research Center. And I think the, the latest season, season five of Black Mirror had just come out at that point, and both of us already were fans of the show. And so... Uh, the episode that really was the hook was was Striking Vipers. And I remember you had told me that you'd seen the episode and it was really cool. And then I went and watched the episode and, you know, my mind was blown. And then we started conversing about all of the theological implications and bringing in philosophy and biblical studies in our respective areas of expertise and interest, but then also our, our common areas of interest. And the more we were talking about this, the more we were thinking, my goodness, this needs to be a much bigger conversation and we want to bring other people in on this. And so that was kind of how the, the idea started. Yeah. And from there, it was wonderful to solicit essays and then shape essays. And of course, uh, for the last couple of years, you know, meeting regularly with you almost every Saturday for a while, chatting about the essays as they were coming in and thinking about how we wanted to organize them and, and all of this. And such a such a lovely process. I, I really enjoy edited volumes primarily because of the collaboration, having having multiple voices uh, and in, and inputs from various places on, on, a, on a given topic. It's such a wonderful experience and really enjoyed it, especially because Black Mirror is such a a fascinating show and it's it's one that provokes all sorts of questions and and it's something that is wonderful to to uh, discuss with others and one of the really fun things for me uh, well obviously we did the majority of this during lockdown in 2020 and so we would meet every saturday for most of the day on saturday going back and forth editing essays and talking about things and uh one of the things that i loved about this process was us writing the introduction together and having lots of conversations about what is the show? What are the major focuses on the show? What is the show really trying to, to get at here? Is this simply just dystopian, kind of a Luddite critique of technology? Are they trying to do something deeper? And so that was also a really fun process to, to write the introduction and cast a vision um, for the volume in light of what we see the show doing. 
Yeah, that was that was a blast, and it's it's wonderful to be at this stage to have to have the volume out and for for people to be able to read and see the work that we've been doing for the past couple of years. And so, if anybody listening is interested in in the volume, it's called Theology in Black Mirror. It's published by Lexington and Fortress Academic. Just came out. We have a discount code of thirty percent off for those of you who are listening. The discount code is LXFANDF three zero. That is the discount code to use when uh, purchasing LXFANDF30. If you are interested, you can use that discount code to purchase the book. You could also request your local library to purchase the book if you like, and uh, we very much appreciate it. We're very proud of this volume. But for our listeners who haven't seen Black Mirror uh, as a series, Obviously, this is a show that we love, that we're major fans of. It's not exactly, as we say in our introduction, a binge-worthy show like some other Netflix series are. It's very intense, very heavy. There's some explicit graphic content in it as well. Um, and and it is it can be emotionally disturbing at times. One of the barriers, I think, for people getting into the, the series is that the very first episode is is quite explicit. It's quite disturbing. So talking to other fans of the show, a very common story is I watched the very first episode and just could not take it. And so I turned it off and and said, the show is not for me. John, what do you recommend people do in in that situation? Yeah, I I typically recommend that people don't start with that first episode. One of the benefits of this actually is because the show is an anthology series, there's no continuity of plot or characters across episode. There are some Easter eggs. There is some kind of, there are some connections. Don't need to get into that just now. But uh, because of the way that it is structured and and the way that it, the stories are told, you can really pop around. You can pick random episodes. And sometimes um, I, I recommend certain episodes is a great place to start. I, 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 li- I like to introduce people to the show uh, with Nosedive, which is the first episode of season three. I think that's a great place to start. It's a little more lighthearted. It's still actually very disturbing. A lot of people regard it as one of the more disturbing episodes, but it has these pastel colors. It's got Bryce Dallas Howard. It's just got, it's kind of, it's kind of lovely and, and kind of funny, even as it is highly disturbing in some ways as well. That's a great place to start. But what I also like to recommend is maybe if people want to watch them in order, perhaps that's fine. And just watch season one in reverse order. It's only three episodes. Um, the first episode, I think, to, to watch would be the entire history of you. And the first episode that we've been talking about is called the National Anthem. Uh, that's the episode that that can be a bit off-putting for people as a first impression to this, this show. Uh, and as Amber said, some people find it to be uh, a little too off-putting and kind of disregard the show as as a whole. Not a great place to start. I know when I first watched it for the very first time with my dad, we just got five minutes into the episode. And then soon as the the sort of plot revealed itself, my dad turned it off and was like, yeah, this isn't for me, son. So it's definitely not the sort of episode that will rope people in. I think it'll it'll tend to be a little more off-putting. So it's not the best place to start. You can circle back to it and watch it at at some other point, um, but maybe don't start there. But we're really excited to share with you guys the conversation that we had today with uh, quite a few of our contributors. Uh, This group that we have today, 
leans more on the theological philosophical side of the, the, the contributions in the essay. And the next episode is going to lean more into the theological biblical studies side. So it was fun to bring out in this conversation those theological philosophical threads that even though the chapters are quite different and they're engaging different things in different episodes, there still is a lot of really interesting continuity uh, and some common conversations that we're all part of. And with that, here's our conversation with Megan, Rebecca, Joanna, and King. Well, welcome, everyone. It's so wonderful to have a number of our contributors on this episode to, to chat about Black Mirror. We're really excited to hear a little bit about what you all have done in, in, in the book that, that has just come out. We're really excited to hear a little bit more about that. But before we begin, uh, what, what attracts you guys to Black Mirror? Why, why is Black Mirror something uh, that people should engage and think deeply about? Hi, Rebecca here. Uh, it's so lovely to be joining uh, you and Amber today, John. Thanks for inviting us. And thanks also for uh, in inviting us to be part of this really exciting volume. It's been great to see um, so many different publications of Black Mirror and um, um, Black Mirror and philosophy and, and, and the list goes on, but also to have a volume, I think, on Black Mirror and theology is very important uh, because there are so many I think latent and sometimes explicit theological themes um, or at least theological affordances in Black Mirror. Um, and not only I think because it lies largely within the, the genre of the, of the dystopic, I think the dystopic does pick up on a lot of very crucial questions about the nature of the human person, which uh, theology really richly um, engages with and responds to. Um, but especially I think Black Mirror has a lot to do with our with our present condition, um, but if it's viewed in the not too distant future. And I think that that can be very attractive for many of us who perhaps spend uh, more time than we should analyzing things as, as academics. And I partly was first drawn to it because um, uh, in comparison to the lives of the people on the uh, in Black Mirror, I was living a very chill life. So it was a great way to kind of weirdly relax. Maybe that says more about me than it should. Um, but uh, what I found so interesting were the kinds of questions about contemporary technology and what their ultimate um, conclusions might be if they were brought to um, sort of a, a, a radical point. Um, the first episode I saw was actually Hated in the Nation, which was uh, from, from the third series. I believe it's one of the first episodes in the third series. And it was just so interesting the way people's ordinary lives and you know, advancing technology are yoked together to then show us some of the darker implications of the use of, of power and surveillance in daily life and, and where that might lead if we didn't also bring in questions which I think and, and, and values which I think theology uniquely supplies us. Um, and so the, for at least for myself, that, that was what really drew me to the series. Yeah, so this is Joanna. I'm based in the UK in, in the University of Leeds. And and what I certainly find in, in the UK culture is um, increasingly theologians need um, a hook or a way in to, sh to show how people are asking theological questions all the time, having theological discussions over the dinner table, though they just don't call it that. And I think Black Mirror, what was really attractive to me was this is such a clear, um, almost explicit way um, to say, hey, look, you're doing theology here. This, 
these TV episodes are, are doing theology themselves. And when people analyze them in their friendship groups at parties or over dinner, you're doing theology too. Um, and it was that kind of easy access um, to think about ultimate questions of faith, death, resurrection, meaning, identity, um, obviously God, anything like that, that, that these issues are right there on the surface, on the table, up for discussion. And, and that just immediately made me interested in this whole series. Hi, this is Megan. So obviously Black Mirror is kind of a artistic achievement of a television show. Um, but I think it's artistic partly uh, in virtue of something that Rebecca mentioned, which is that it is something, it, it's presenting situations that seem to be similar to what we find ourselves in now or what we anticipate finding ourselves in in the near future. And I think it, it's not, it's, I think it goes beyond just presenting our current situation as sort of a foray into a brave new world, but it kind of uh, paints a it, uh, most episodes at least paint this kind of bleak, almost like techno-pessimistic uh, picture um, that I think raises uh, a really interesting question for all the viewers, which is, is it possible that the advancements that humans make could be creating a world that humans can't do well in? Uh, which uh, incidentally is why I was really excited when uh, Amber approached me about maybe writing a paper on Black Mirror Nietzsche, because I think he's the perfect philosopher to talk about whether uh, what we're doing, uh, how, we're, how we're trying to improve our lives might be actually making us less and less healthy as humans. If I may just pick up on something Megan said right there that I, that I really love, I think Black Mirror very um, almost poetically, I think poetically and very insightfully, shows the degree to which as it paints, paints a bleak picture, it's almost, I, I would say you can sometimes see an implicit um, act of defiance against the very bleak picture that it is painting, almost as if it's hoping to forecast a certain future to us uh, in the attempt to invite us to think about what might an alternative future be. And particularly in the um, episode of Black Mirror that Joanna and I uh, co-wrote together, it was, it was wonderful to work with Joanna on this. Um, uh, what I found so interesting was uh, as we looked at the episode Be Right Back, which deals with the question of digital resurrection and how we, we um, face the difficulty of mourning a lost loved one, the more that some of the characters try to turn to technology to find a redress for larger metaphysical questions and problems which um, may, may incorporate the technological but ultimately transcend them, um, the more that certain characters uh, uh, drew them or were drawn towards technology, we also saw the degree to which they needed so much more. And so I think many of these episodes show us the vulnerability, the dependency, um, the spiritual depth of persons. And, and I think that is something that it can really um, offer to our, our audience. It's, it, it questions in many ways, even implicitly, the, the, the secular hold um, or the secular view. One thing I think is interesting about Black Mirror is the freedom that the creators have in some way. So there's no fixed length of the episode and even not necessarily a focus on narrative on the episode. So it's just simply actually little thought experiments and creation of the worlds in which we might inhabit. And that I think is just quite a good, it, to me is a kind of breath of fresh air in terms of how, what we, how we approach media and, and entertainment in a way. And in some sense, the freedom extends so far that these shows often aren't entertaining and, and almost deliberately torturous in some way and very self-aware 
worryingly so, as um, as well, the self-awareness is very clear, even from the notion, the, the title of Black Mirror itself. And so the, these kind of like meta, ironical, what do they call it, self-referential things, I think are something that I find very interesting about Black Mirror as a franchise overall. Okay, well, we really were excited to see the variety of different essay ideas that we received from you guys, and also how they are able to be put in conversation in such unique ways. But to give our listeners a little preview of what they might expect to find in this volume, I'm wondering if you each can give just a little snippet, no spoilers or anything, but just a little snippet of the chapter that you wrote and maybe what drew you to it and and the the main things that you're hoping to draw out in the chapter. Sure, I'll speak for um, my chapter with Rebecca. So we wrote on um, Be Right Back. Um, And we called it Be Right Back, The Ethics of Mourning, Inauthenticity and Resurrection in a Digital Age. And um, I hope you can already see that actually Rebecca and I almost had too many ideas. I think we did weave them together, but there's issues about how you mourn well when a loved one dies, which is um, one of the earliest things that happens in the episode is someone dies. And um, the rest of the episode is a kind of meditation on how do you mourn, how do you mourn the loss of someone who is such a big part of your life, like a family member. But we immediately got into questions of what it means to live an authentic life as well. That was really apparent. It didn't have to dig so deep. It was the questions around how, what we leave behind in terms of our digital footprint. So, and we see this now, if you um, have had a, a bereavement in your life in the last kind of five, 10 years, there's always that question of, do I delete the person's Facebook profile or do I leave it up there as a kind of memorial wall? That's just one small example, but this episode and what we try and draw out of it is really this question of um, what role does, does the digital have in how we mourn in, and in how we construct our identities in, in this life, which then plays a, a role in how we're mourned um, after we leave this life. Um, but then also the episode pushes further into questions of resurrection, which are more obviously um, in dialoguing with Christian theology. So um, in what sense can, could technology provide a kind of alternative form of resurrection in the near future? Um, and, and would that satisfy us? That's the, that's the big issue, I think, in our chapter and, and in this episode, Be Right Back. Oh, I think that was... Uh, an excellent synopsis of what ended up being, as you say, Joanna, a quite involved chapter. We did have a lot of different threads or strands that we were weaving together, which did end up culminating in this question about what does it mean to live an authentic life? Um, And that's actually a question that often has haunted Charlie Brooker himself. And he himself has said that when he was thinking about the question of the real and of real authentic relations between persons. This is when the um, the, the kind of concept of uh, Be Right Back emerged for him. And he wrote it furiously in just a couple of nights, he said, when he was just sort of, after he had done a lot of online binging and was, was really dissatisfied with the experience of, of interacting online through that particular kind of mediation. Perhaps one other thing I, I would just add um, is that Part of the question that that comes to the surface when we experience death is is really what is life all about, actually, right? Uh, There there are certain kinds of experiences. I think suffering and and death being uh, principal among them, where we really have to take a hard look 
at, our, at ourselves. And one of the things that has really helped us throughout history uh, is ritual and ways of coming to, to work through the problem of mourning. Um, and something that really interested me when I was thinking about this um, episode from uh, Black Mirror was the way in which uh, psychologists have talked about uh, practices of mourning, especially um, in the 20th century when a lot of people have been slightly dislocated from a more collective communal and particularly religious um, mode of mourning. And Freud says something very interesting in one of his um, really important early essays on mourning and melancholia, where he talks about how mourning is learning how to respect reality. I'm paraphrasing here, but it can be very hard to, uh, to move to a state of, of um, coming to terms with reality. He argues that melancholia, which is kind of this perpetual deferral of the reality of facing death, is actually a desire to escape or to, in a sense, offer yourself an alternate reality. Um, and so that started to get me thinking about some of the interesting ways in which, at least in this episode, um, a mode of digital resurrection starts to become an alternate reality um, for Martha and the, the main character. And in the end, robs her of many of the personal relationships she had um, that she cherished a great deal before the, the event of, of loss in her life. Um, so with, within all of that emerge many important questions and and I to my mind I, I think most satisf satisfactorily answered from a theological standpoint um, many questions about what is the nature of the human person relations between persons the possibilities but also the limits of technology and how they all matter not only for our own understanding of reality but when it comes to broader questions about history what is the end or purpose of our life so um, again, as you can see, I'm starting just, just getting sprawling over here, but um, maybe the last thing I'll add is that also this chapter and its idea grew out of a, a module, a class that I was um, really fortunate to create and co-teach with Joanna before she left St. Andrews for Leeds. Um, and uh, it was really fun to uh, discuss this um, episode with students because they found it such a fertile case study for thinking about so many of the things they study in, in the classroom, um, but then noticing its, you know, real life implications um, when it comes to really difficult questions about existence. Hi, yeah, this is Megan. I can speak for um, Amber's in my chapter that we wrote. So we wrote um, a chapter. I had a, a great time writing this with her. Uh, called Archangel and the Death of God, a Nietzschean Critique of Technology's Soteriological Scheme, where we examined uh, the Black Mirror episode of Archangel through uh, the lens of the uh, German philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche. So Nietzsche, uh, if anyone knows, or for, for any person who knows anything about Nietzsche, the one thing that they know about Nietzsche is that he was not uh, a fan of, um, of most religious systems uh, or religious belief in general. I think that's maybe the only thing my mom knows about him. Um, so uh, explaining to her why I was writing about him took, took a while. Um, <laughs> but, um, but, but Nietzsche's critique is really, uh, it, it, of re his critiques of religion, which are scattered throughout um, his work and, and take various forms. They all have a common thread. And I think it's, it's a really, really uh, important critique. It's kind of a, it's not a standard argument against the existence of God or any sort of um, argument from metaphysics, but it's a, it's a, uh, they generally take the form of kind of psychological debunking. Why, why, why do you have these 
religious beliefs? What are they doing for you? What's drawing you to them? And is it good for you, uh, really, ultimately? Um, and uh, and so the, this is a really uh, powerful critique, I think, and it's something um, that in this chapter we we try to use uh, in uh, as a critique of of te certain technological advancements, particularly those on display in the episode we analyze, which is Archangel. So in Archangel, the the backstory is that there's this technology uh, that allows parents to filter out distressing uh, or traumatizing content that their children might uh, might happen across, might happen to see. Um, it's a sort of um, implant. It keeps them from um, from viewing uh, dead bodies or violence. It keeps them from hearing uh, abusive uh, language or or things like that. So it follows the story of of one particular mother and daughter and the ways in which this technology seems at first to be um, a, a good kind of protective uh, blanket on the daughter, but but quickly becomes overbearing and tyrannical and something that. Um, that, that, that seems to be hindering the, the growth and development of the daughter. Um, so in this, uh, in, in this chapter, basically what we try to do is take Nietzsche's really brilliant critique of religious belief and ask, um, can we say similar things about the kind of salvific promises of uh, really cutting edge technological advancements um, that seem like uh, the perfect thing to help the vulnerable uh, uh, or the, the, the weakest among us, but, but are they really? Um, Nietzsche himself, interestingly, was really, throughout his work, had sort of very different um, things to say about, about uh, new and emerging technology, which obviously was very different uh, in his time in the, in the 19th century. But um, uh, at various places, he seems um, either very, very bleak about uh, technological advancements um, or in his, in his more um, positivist uh, phase actually has some really uh, hopeful sounding things to say. Um, so uh, so he doesn't have a lot to say about technology itself, or he doesn't have any maybe consistent thing that he uh, he says throughout his work, but it but but at least we argue that um, given what he thinks about religious belief, he he might have some sort of similar uh, debunking arguments or skepticism toward uh, extreme uh, techno optimism. One of the things that was really interesting for me to think about Archangel in connection with Nietzsche's death of God, especially, and, and his argument, his critique of Christianity, was that obviously, I mean, we're pretty certain that this was not in the back of the mind of Jodie Foster and Charlie Brooker when they were thinking about this. But my first draw to it was watching the show thinking, oh my goodness, this is actually a really great illustration to explain Nietzsche's critique, um, to explain what is this metaphysical um, grid? What is this metaphysical sort of straitjacket? Um, what is his problem with metaphysical systems? And, and the image of that device really kind of clarifies how he sees that functioning in our lives. And then also how he thinks that that makes us weak and actually pathological and unable to cope with real life, which is indeed what happens with the daughter when she is actually unable to live in the world in a meaningful and a strong uh, way. So I think not only does Nietzsche bring um, kind of an interesting way of reading the episode, but I also think that the episode kind of enlighten or illuminates a lot of uh, key aspects of Nietzsche's argument and sort of illustrates very well um, the things that he's trying to, to suggest. 
Yeah, so that's really interesting to hear about how this piece of technology provides a kind of an example of, of Nietzsche's problem with religion as not helping us work through reality. And in a sense, a similar dynamic was going on in Be Right Back insofar as technology was preventing the main character from working through the negative and tragic aspects of reality. Um, but obviously, Rebecca and I argue that um, where technology fails the main character in Be Right Back, religion, if the main character had engaged in religion, would have maybe provided a better way to face the horrors of reality and work through them in a healthier way. It's not just a form of escapism. It's, um, it's a hot kind of work. Um, so I'm wondering if you did that at all in your chapter, if you think that the, that the religion can buy, provide a better a better mechanism. Nietzsche was wrong. It's a be there's a better mechanism out there than this chip in the child's brain. Or whether you think actually this was a good metaphor and it applies to religion as well. Yeah, so um, that's a great question. I mean, for Nietzsche, the, the answer is, is always, I shouldn't say always, because uh, there, there are a few different Nietzsche's. But I think largely for Nietzsche, the answer is going to come back to uh, this idea of, of health. Um, uh, under what conditions are we or 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 can we be healthy? Uh, he doesn't he he refers to himself as a philosophical physician uh, doctor. He's trying to he's trying to make people um or help them become healthier. So um so right, so, so there's this question, well, you know, maybe maybe our our current or emerging technology is having the sickening effect on us. Um is the same true of, of religious belief. And I think one thing that um, religious people or, or theologians um, or philosophers of religion need to, need to take seriously about Nietzsche is it's almost certainly true of, of some, uh, maybe even large, large amounts uh, of religious devotion um, or belief um, or systems. But that's not uh, really the interesting question. The interesting question is, does it have to be? Um, and I think with both, uh, well, so certainly I don't think it has to be. Uh, with You know, Nietzsche's um, maybe also maybe infamous for having a, a very particular read of, of Christianity, for instance, that isn't, uh, that, that a lot of people consider very inaccurate. Uh, his picture of, of of Christ as um, as extremely psychologically uh, weak or or unable to bear any kind of of pain or suffering uh, is is something that I think is is a misread uh, to put it lightly. Um, right. So 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 I think it's it's completely reasonable to say well a uh, uh, a better theological understanding um, which show no it doesn't have to be maybe it's really hard actually to be uh, religiously devoted in a way that doesn't just cause you to use it as a kind of um, crutch or shelter um, from the harsh realities of the world um, that may be true in fact I think um, I think it probably is um, but it but it doesn't have to be and when it's when it's uh, being engaged in um, wholeheartedly uh, or or pure heartedly maybe uh, I think it's not. Can the same be said of technology? You know, sure, <laughs> uh, sure, we can. Uh, there, I don't think there's anything inherent in technological advancement that uh, that has to uh, push us toward more uh, sort of protectionism um, or uh, push us toward being the kinds of of creatures that can't really face the world. But I, I, unlike maybe religious devotion, that's not 
entirely something that individuals have individual control over. Um, that seems more like a collective action problem, which is why I find it more concerning. Yeah, and I, I think it's a one of the things we were thinking about is how, at, a, at least in his positivist period, Nietzsche was very keen on this idea of technology or of science as offering a non-metaphysical solution. So, you know, he's wanting to overthrow metaphysics, but he's seeing that there are things that we still need, right? And, and we have this kind of metaphysical need, and he thinks that tech might be able to fit that bill. And I think what this episode shows is that that still, that operates nonetheless on a soteriological scheme. So it's still on a kind of theological plane that you're still needing some kind of salvation for something. Um, and so the, the question is, okay, so the same questions that Nietzsche directs to Christianity um, in terms of its, its health and how it's used and how it's weaponized and those sorts of things, we probably would do well to direct those same questions to our understanding of technology as well. Um, so to allow both of them to kind of come under the Nietzschean critique, not necessarily to remove technology or to remove religion, but as Megan said, the more interesting question is, does it have to be this way? Can these critiques make way for better religion and can they make way for a better use of tech as well? So um, a few of the topics that we've just um, uh, highlighted actually uh, also appear in this chapter that uh, pa Patrick McGlinchey and I wrote um, on the Christmas special episode uh, that is um, called White Christmas, namely um, this whole the whole uh, death of God theme in, in atheism and existentialism, um, who's finds which finds its kind of representative in the 20th century philosopher uh, Jean-Paul Sartre, who is a, a key figure in in what we discuss in this um, um, essay of ours. And well, Amber mentioned the, the phrase um, overturning, overthrowing metaphysics, which you could have some, sometimes associated with Jean-Luc Marion, who's another conversation partner in, in the thing. So it kind of comes out quite um, neatly. Oh, I have forgot to say also um, the notion of authenticity that Joanne and Rebecca mentioned. Obviously, Sartre is a big thinker of that. So the essay we, um, Patrick and I wrote um, is about White Christmas in a sense, but it, but the main theme that we're trying to pick out there is the notion of vision or the motif of vision and how seeing and being seen is portrayed, if you want to use a fancy term, phenomenologically. Um, so the, the White Christmas episode is surrounds um, two technolo technological devices, but I think the most interesting one that we might just talk about here is the one called um, Z-Eyes or Z-Eyes in in British. <laughs> um, um, so that is a, uh, a sort of optical implant that allows users to live stream what they see and hear to others, but it also um, can block certain people from their sight. Um, I won't give spoilers, but in case people haven't seen that one. Um, but anyway, so what, what we see in this, what, what we, <laughs> no pun intended, what we see in this episode is that um, people who, some people are blocked from others and and um and they won't be able to see them and you also but you can also choose to block others so that you don't need to see people you don't like and one, one of the things we were trying to think about is how this notion or how this motif or theme of vision relates to say the christian tradition so in the new testament we get the notion of you know the beatific vision so the the ultimate relationship creatures can have with god is captured by the notion of vision and interestingly enough, in, in Sartre's uh, 
And being seen by God is always considered a kind of blessing and uh, a kind of fundamental part of one's relationship with God. And interestingly enough, in Sartre's atheistic phenomenology, what he kind of argues is that being seen is actually a curse or con condemnation, to use the Sartrean phrasing. Because for Sartre, we're always in a better position. The authentic one, if you will, is the one who sees others. And when subjected to someone else's vision, or if we might use the word, the gaze of the other, um, we're always in a more uncomfortable and, if you will, an inauthentic uh, place. So we're, in, in our chapter, we try to pick out how, how this might have relates to the, the account of um, uh, the, uh, the, the ZI device and the being blocked out of one vision in this episode. And one thing we, we thought was interesting is but the message, the implicit message of this Christmas special is that being blocked off from vision is, is seen as the ultimate punishment in some way, which is, uh, which is um, and not being seen by others is an ultimate punishment. So that kind of goes against the kind of Sartrean motif. And so what we wanted to do in this um, essay was contrast uh, Sartre's position with the, the Christian thinker uh, Jean-Luc Marion's um, alternative which is an alternative account of God as the ultimate thing that, that we see, but also that sees us in some way. So being seen by God is definitely a positive, or being seen by the capital O other is definitely seen as a positive. And we are assuming that, you know, Charlie Brooker and all that do not have a um, kind of implicit religious message, even though it is uh, a, a, an episode on Christmas. So we didn't want to get into too much of that. But one thing was interesting is that there, there seems to be this kind of what we might call a natural desire to be seen and to see others that uh, the, the episode wants to capture and express, which we might compare to, say, um, you know, um, just to be slightly controversial, uh, what Thomas Aquinas calls the natural desire um, for the vision of the divine substance in the Summa Contra Gentiles. Um, I'm saying it's controversial because certain Thomas don't like that particular passage. But, um, but I think this natural desire to see, um, or to indeed see God, is well captured negatively in this episode because they kind of want to say, well, actually being seen or, and seeing is a bad thing. And, and, if we, and then this is where the Sartrean thing uh, comes in because God is the thing, is this person who sees all... Well, person that might not be the right word, but the entity that sees all things. So there's a certain way in which this all relates to how one might dislike the God language or the belief in God and all that. And um, perhaps I might just draw on one bit that I thought was an interesting comparison that we brought up in this, um, uh, in, our, in our little contribution, is namely that this is a Christmas episode, yeah, and like a Christmas special. And the Christmas message is actually God not only seeing us in the flesh, but God allowing God's self to be seen in the flesh, if you will. And this was very much, and whether intentionally or not, it was inverted by the, the, uh, the episode. And one interesting comparison I thought we made was comparing the theme of White Christmas, the show, the episode, to the observance of Holy Saturday in the Christian tradition, where the day when, you know, and when churches tend to hide away the icons, the statues, and all the nice looking things that we see in church, um, 
and to cover them up, essentially, veiling them. Just as in the show, the ones who are blocked off are actually veiled off um, in a way. So we, we kind of made that conversation when, so Holy Saturday was, is obviously the day um, when Christ rested in the tomb and that was unseen by everyone else during Christ's mission on earth. And we thought there was an interesting contrast between this kind of, the dim view, if you will, of um, Black Mirror's account of Christmas and the one we, uh, uh, and if you will, the traditional Christmas message in the notions of um, vision. That ties in really well to something that happened in Rebecca's and I's episode in our chapter around mm. um, when those who have died, so linking to what you said about Holy Saturday, um, whether the fact that they cannot be seen, the dead cannot be seen, and the problem that happens in our episode is that the, the dead are brought back in some sort of visual form. There's an attempt, at least, to see them again visually. Um, and this isn't just in the kind of futuristic technologies that don't quite yet exist, but also just in it, they play around with ideas of looking at photographs of the dead too. Um, and what, what that dynamic does when you see those who have died, their, their, their image has been captured, but it's such a flattening of their image, right? You're, all you can see is um, a 2D image um, or, or a, a replication of an image of the once that was alive, but, but the image is no longer a kind of living image, a dynamic image with future possibilities. It can only be an image that repeats the past. Um, and I think that's a, just a really interesting crossover with what you said around when it's appropriate to veil an image and when it's appropriate to unveil an image and when that becomes, um, when the seeing becomes life-giving or when the seeing actually becomes a reduction of the gaze of the other. Um, there's some fun crossovers there. Yeah, so here comes the spoiler alert. <laughs> um, at the end of the show, you actually one of the characters gets condemned to repeating and replaying the past um, before their eyes, if you will. So um, uh, that's part of the other techno technological device of the show um, called Cookies, but which I didn't mention. But, there, you, but there's definitely some kind of, well, actually, now that we've, and there's this kind of Nietzschean notion of the eternal return or repetition, if you will, but perhaps in a different way. But th there are definitely some lingering motifs between the shows we've talked about. Yeah, this is why we really loved uh... King and Patrick's essay kind of in connection with Joanne and Rebecca's because there, there are so many interesting parallels and connections here. I mean, for one, there's the, the emphasis on the incarnation in Kings and Patrick's and then Joanne and Rebecca are focusing on resurrection. So um, thinking about those things together and this concept of in the flesh and being seen and those sorts of things. But to follow up what Joanna was saying, um, I, I also was thinking about how Ash, the, uh, the sort of living, who's not really living, but you know, this AI, whatever he is, he is, he's, he's just like that image that you were describing, Joanna, that in that he's 2D, he doesn't have an open future possibilities. He's not actually living. He's just this kind of collection of the past. And you, you think about particularly in their scenes together, he does not actually see Martha. He's not looking at Martha. Martha sees him. So it's, it's this very egocentric kind of relationship that they have that, that he becomes almost this this idol, right, that she creates, that she's able to project her memories and her wishes and her loves on, but she's not actually seen in return by him as this living other, um, which is exactly what, what King and Patrick are getting into with that, that there's a sense, that, you know, with Sartre that that, that actually um, might seem like a nice thing in a sense, 
Um, but Marianne is showing how that's actually not life-giving, that to, to become oneself is, is actually to, to do so through the gaze of the other. Uh, and following off of that, those are some great insights, Amber, and, you know, even Marianne's distinctions between the icon and idol, I think, would play into this very nicely. And I know that in another section of the book, you talk quite a bit about um, boredom and spectacle, which are very closely linked um, uh, throughout the episode, but then also as a, uh, an important uh, phenomenological problem or condition that we especially experience in the age of advertising. And I'd say with even, you know, the way uh, the pornographic drives the internet in a lot of ways, these kind of false um, alternative realities that, that actually um, are driven by various idols of our own making um, that were also, I, I think, highly manipulated to, to, to want or desire based on, you know, all kinds of, uh, um, manipulations that are occurring, unethical ones, I'd say. Um, but something else that's very interested in all this gazing and being gazed at or the desire to be seen or not actually being seen is also this question of control, which is that very often at the heart of the technological. And there are a lot of very interesting allusions to, of course, Mary Shelley's um, groundbreaking Frankenstein um, throughout Be Right Back, and this desire to try to employ the, the various um, tools and advancements of science in order to have life on your own terms, or to come to terms um, with a, with, um, a very difficult, say, moment of suffering or pain, again, according to your own terms. And one of the things that really struck me in watching Be Right Back various times um, was the degree to which some of the best interactions between characters and the most meaningful ones occurred um, when people surrendered to a degree, um, to, to the moment. And so, especially in the opening of the story, you see these really lovely, intimate, scenes and even bantering between Martha and biological Ash but before he, he dies in a car crash. I mean, you find that out a few minutes in, so I'm not really doing a spoiler alert, um, where they find out interesting things about each other just through spontaneous give and take in the moment. Um, and then that always gets paused, of that intimate connection gets paused or, or, or is um, broken down even when Ash, as it were, escapes into virtual reality and Martha ends up calling virtual reality a thief. It's, it's stealing, um, uh, you know, time from them, this, this ability to be present in the moment together. And for me, I think that could raise all kinds of interesting questions about the relationship between uh, surrender and control and the ways in which certain uses of technology are all about an attempt at control and really kind of um, try to uh, advance a very, a very contemporary, I think, problem, which you see even though in early mythic stories, you know, like Prometheus, where one kind of wants to be a complete self-determiner, that one's identity is on, is on one's own terms. But um, increasingly, it seems like so much of one's identity is really to um, receive what is given in advance. Um, we don't even ask to be born, right? So um, the question of the gift um, and, and its relationship to technology in our current situation would also be, I think, a really interesting avenue to explore, especially from a theological perspective. Yeah, those themes also carry into the chapter that I wrote that you mentioned on um, barbarism, 15 million merits, where the, for the episode 15 million merits, where I'm talking about this episode in conversation with a French Catholic phenomenologist, Michel Henri. Um, I 
I see this episode as kind of a radicalized or dramatized portrayal of his notion of barbarism, of what happens when we take a society and we reduce everything to visual display. Uh, this kind of technological advancement that guts the inner life of things and everything we see is screens and avatars. And what is that experience like? What does that result in? Um, how does that shape our everyday human experiences? And I chose to focus on the two areas of human experiences that the show really brings out, um, and that's work and romantic love. Um, and what the show really emphasizes what the entertainment industry has to do with both of those things. And so as it pertains to work, um, that when work is not this subjective, creative engagement with the world, this act of making and creating and pouring oneself into something, but instead becomes this alienated kind of uh, just one part of a, a machine. You're not even sure what you're doing. You're just clocking in, clocking out. It results in this deep existential boredom that goes deeper than just like, oh, I'm kind of bored right now, but it's kind of at the depths of your soul, just a, an alienation and a lostness. Um, and, and this kind of lethargic dread that you experience. And so um, the entertainment industry in the episode comes in to sort of assuage that boredom by saying, oh, we'll just entertain you while you're doing this mindless, numbing, mundane work. Um, but then it, it, what you see is that that doesn't actually help anything at all. Um, but then the other part that's connected to the entertainment industry of this society is the experience of romantic love. And what does romantic love look like in a barbaristic society? Well, it looks a lot like pornography because you have gutted the inner life of the, the beloved other. You've reduced the other to a trope, a trope of porn star. And the point is, is that this is not an actual living other that you're encountering. This is a silhouette. This is just a, a, an image that you project your own fantasies upon. And so I did a phenomenological analysis of the structure of the experience of pornography, what's going on there when we're engaging in um, pornographic experiences. And how does the entertainment industry um, kind of force us into that in different ways in the way that it directs our gaze to acquire a, a specific kind of pornographic gaze, which is very similar to what the gaze we've been talking about um, thus far, which is an egocentric gaze. It's a seeing the other but not being seen in return. And therefore, you kind of shirk responsibility because you're not actually encountering the gaze of the other that's saying, no, I'm a living being. You can't just efface me. You can't just project your expectations and wishes and fantasies onto me, um, but I'm here to be encountered as that beloved other. And so that encounter sort of draws you out of yourself um, as opposed to just kind of subsuming everything into yourself. So yeah, th these themes of the gaze and how that plays in terms of human experiences of work and love and how we're thinking about death and mourning and then how we're thinking about, you know, the, the gift and also the condemnation and the call to responsibility through the experience of seeing and being seen uh, is something that this, this section of the book, I think, really pulls out. Yeah, thanks, Amber. Joanna here again. I just really enjoy how there's so many interconnections and um so one of the frustrations that our the main character martha has with the, with the technology that she engages is that it does whatever she wants and it turns out that's really frustrating she doesn't want a slave a 
techno slave. Um, she doesn't want porn at the end of the day. She wants someone who's going to fight back and fall asleep during sex and, um, you know, wind, drive her up the wall. That's what it turns out she wants um, in her life, um, is quite, which I think we all know deep down, but we don't, um, we don't get told that, as you say, by entertainment industries, by advertisement industries. And I think that brings in a really important financial and economic aspect um, that we touch upon in our chapter, and I'm sure many others will too, that there's something really dark in how, um, what Martha needs in her morning, or I should imagine in other episodes, what we need for, to be good parents or um, what we need to have a meaningful relationships um, is robbed of us from companies that want to make money in, in the episodes. That's effectively what, what's going on. I think a lot of the time companies are trying to sell a product. Um, and, but what they take is far more than money um, at the end of the day. And I think that is one of the most chilling lessons um, from a lot of Black Mirror episodes that really draws me to the whole series to go back to how we opened this um, is, a, is I think we need this reminder that it's not only is there no such thing as a free lunch, as it were, but often you're paying in ways that you, you don't immediately see, are not immediately obvious. Um, and these episodes really help play out and help us see the, the costs, the invisible costs that some forms of technology either do already have or may have in the future if we're not careful. Yeah, and this, I think, kind of, we could throw this easily to Archangel, too, and, and really to Nietzsche's concepts here. Uh, Megan, I don't know if you want to speak to this, but again, there's some analogies between a, a, bad, a use of bad religion and the, the way that it's making us sick. And then the use of technology in these ways to kind of meet these needs that's also making us sick. Um, I wonder if you have any, any thoughts on that. Um, yeah, I can say something about that. I mean, the, what was crossing my mind as Joanna was, was talking uh, uh, just now was um, the, the idea that there's no such thing as a free lunch. Um, and it's not even really these uh, deeper existential things that, that, that the, the tech companies are immediately taking apart from money, right? It's certainly, they're not just selling a product, uh, they're not just making, uh, you know, uh, they're they're not just making money directly, but they're they're taking um, they're 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 taking data from us most immediately, uh, right? That's that's where they make the bulk of of their profit quite often uh, is through our data, which they can sell to other companies, um, which puts us in this position of being maximally kind of manipulable. We've um, we have dispersed all of this really personal information to uh, strangers around the globe who are going to use it for a profit. Um, and this may not be unpleasant to us at any point at all. Uh, it might make life seem better uh, when we're shown things that we are inclined to want to desire uh, because they know we'll desire them because they know all this about us. Um, then it kind of seems like uh, maybe more personalized or um, or like we're having our, our needs met in, a, in an easier way. Um, but the, the question about what this is doing to our, uh, I, sort of a cheesy way of putting it, but like our, our spiritual muscles, our existential muscles, how are we, how are we atrophying uh, in this, in this um, situation? And um, I mean, from what I can tell, the answer is a lot. Uh, and, um, but the question of what we can do about it requires that we kind of 
consent to putting ourselves in a position that's going to be painful or uncomfortable for a while as we as we regain the ability to 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 live um or to exist as as individuals um and so uh one worries that maybe there won't uh that this won't happen one of the things that joanna and i thought about a lot when we wrote our chapter was the question of work or effort or, or even difficulty because especially when there's suffering in our lives, we have to kind of labor through it at certain points and also sometimes just accept it and, and try to exist, try to be, try to get through the day as it were. Getting through the day can be quite heroic sometimes. Um, but when I think about the ways in which, uh, let's say, the economies that structure virtual reality and data collection and so forth, those things are all about the quick fix and how we can move kind of from pleasure to pleasure uh, to the point where sometimes I can't even remember like what clothing website I'm on because I've just been comparing so many of the same, you know, blazers or something like that when I'm making a choice. And some of that's super great, uh, I, I enjoy it. But um, there, you know, I was thinking about this actually when I was in London recently, like so much more effort to go to different shops and try on different blazers and all that sort of thing. That's just a very simple example. But I think it does apply to some of the larger wrestlings that we have in our life. It's a lot easier to be kind of numb or to give over to the spectacle. And, and, and there are various, you know, correlatives or um, uh, modes that predate our contemporary advertising spectacle that have been used since, you know, um, uh, the classical period, like I'm thinking of, you know, Augustine and his critique of the games or, you know, and things like that, this way of trying to kind of um, uh, parcel out or, 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 or um, give over your emotions, um, finding an outlet for them elsewhere so that you don't have to deal with it. You don't have to go through the work of, of facing yourself and even just seeing some of, you know, the unpredictable things that are within you. Because I think something that uh, Black Mirror really gets at is that um, if we live according to a very specific kind of technocratic mode, we really think that, you know, we reduce ourselves to kind of ego-driven, um, consuming, animal really you know um there, there's even a really dark way in which when in in black uh in the episode that we looked at in black mirror um be right back when martha is updating info uploading information to the cloud about her deceased beloved ash the cloud says yum right so it's kind of eating these memories kind of like cookies or whatever and and these are you know painful memories for her to share even if they're good memories because you know, ash is lost. Parts of us uh, suffer um, as a result. And so I think one of the things that's really important, especially given the nature of this volume, which is Black Mirror and theology, to really think about some of the um, resources that are uniquely available and on offer through the theological mode itself. And one of the things that Joanna and I certainly found was that this deep understanding of the religious nature of the person, of um, the, the soul, um, that that is expressed through things like ritual and community and doing the hard work of giving oneself over to others through acts of agopic love they really do feed aspects of the human person that cannot be satisfactorily fed in any other way i i think yeah i don't there's, there was notion when 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 this the bit when 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 rebecca mentioned the prometheus theme and i thought there was something there um on how um is actually interesting in the Prometheus myth, what is given to humanity is fire, i.e. technology. And so that's, uh, uh, as, as Anne would know, like Bernard Stiegler picks up on this um, 
but uh, uh, and so on. But I think it, this whole thing about there is what I find interesting about Black Mirror is actually well, firstly, there is the black the notion of black, which implies a certain darkness about the show. But the mirror and Black Mirror obviously refers to the TV. But there is this element of the mirror, so it's actually reflecting something that's in some sense already happening, but we might also say always already happening. And, and, and I do wonder whether we sometimes over-focus on the dystopian element of Black Mirror and do not say that, well, in some sense, and to go back to like to use Bernard Stiegler's point in some way, the human animal is actually the technological animal. So what distinguishes the human is actually we use knives and forks to eat, as opposed and and that and you know, uh, those of you can see me on the screen, I'm wearing glasses. That and that's technology at work already, and we are this cause made possible through technology. And well, and Stiegler's point kind of goes even more extreme that language itself is already technological because we're not born with uh, language. So it's not natural in that sense. So, and so the ancient philosophical definition of the human as the language animal is already proto-technological. So I think there is this element that we might want to think about to say we that yes, technology could be bad, but it's also what makes us human and it's fitting for humans to be technological in some way. Um, but this, and this is where Stiegler's um, teacher, Derrida's reading of Plato's Pharmacon in the Phaedrus is quite interesting because in the, in the Phaedrus, Plato talks about writing as a pharmacon, i.e. both a medicine and a, a, a poison. Why? Because writing is good for our memory because, you know, I don't remember, say, Amber's phone number, so I've written it down somewhere, and that helps me remember it. But at the same time, when I over-rely on my writing, or indeed my phone contact book app thing, whatever you call it, that also harms my um, me memory, that um, trains us less. So technology in this most basic form, writing or language, is already always, always already um, both a, a curse and a blessing. So I want to just emphasize maybe the ambiguity of this that we yes there is definitely the dystopian catastrophic side of technology that we go oh no but at the same time well we watch black mirror in the first place through technology and it's created through technology and there's something ultimately good about that i would like to think well, this has been a fantastic conversation. It's so lovely to have you all on the podcast to be able to recap some of some of the wonderful essays and, and things that you all have been been thinking about for the last couple of years with us. And uh, it's just a, a joy to be at this stage and, and to reflect on that with you all. Thanks, John. Thanks, Amber. Yeah, thank you very much. Thanks.